0: John chapter 20. If you don't have a Bible, you can use your phone or I threw it on the screen behind us. Basically, I just want you to see that the words that I'm going to be reading from and explaining this morning are not my idea. These are words that were written almost 2,000 years ago by eyewitness testimonies. And so I just want you to see that for yourself this morning. I'm going to read the passage for us and then I will pray. Jesus came in and stood among them and said, peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, put your finger here and see my hands and put your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him, my Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have Believe, Father, I just pray as we glimpse and look out uh, this amazing account of how you appear to the disciples, to Thomas, I pray that you would come by your Spirit now and and work in our hearts. God, help us to believe. Help us to see who Jesus is. And I pray, God, that that would transform us, not just today, but for the rest of our lives. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. One of the aspects of Christianity that always seems to amaze me is who God chooses to be his followers, right? Right. So, so God comes to earth as a man and he says, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to basically put around me this group of 12 handpicked individuals. They're going to follow me everywhere I go. I'm going to teach them everything I no, and then I'm going to send them out onto mission, and yet, who does he choose to be a part of that group? Uneducated fishermen, despised tax collectors who have a very poor reputation in the community, a zealot, uh, a religious fringe person, and, and, the, and these people, they, they struggle to actually understand who Jesus is at first. They're individuals who deny or betray Jesus. They're individuals who scatter in fear when Jesus is crucified. And sometimes I wonder, if Jesus then really knew who he was putting around him, why that group? Why this hodgepodge that is Team B at best? Like, this is not the group of individuals you would normally hand to be your first messengers, why them? And yet at the same time, I actually derive great comfort knowing that God chose people, that God allowed people to belong to him who don't have their life totally in order. He picked people who would trust him and and ask him to transform them, not people who had all their ducks in a row. And I think most comforting for me is knowing that these disciples struggled with doubt, with doubt. You see, I, I'm not sure what version of Christianity you may have heard of growing up, but but the version that says Christians don't struggle with doubt. Christians don't ask questions. Christians have all the certainty they need about God and what he's done and who he is. That version of Christianity is not true. The reality is we we, we struggle with these questions. The reality is even Jesus' closest followers struggled with doubts. And it's actually in that place of doubting that Jesus comes and tries to help them to believe. And so my question then this morning is, what is it specifically that confronts our doubt and allows us to believe? The answer is the resurrection. It's the resurrection. And so I just have two simple points this morning. The first one is calculating doubt, and the second one is confronting doubt doubts. So look at verse 24 and 25 again. First, calculated doubts. Now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told them, we've seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. You see, see, here's what's happened. The Romans crucified Jesus on Friday. It's now Sunday, and the disciples are hiding out in a house. You see, they're afraid. They know they killed their leader, and they're next. That's what you do to squash a revolution. They're coming for the disciples. And so they're hiding out in this room, and it's Sunday morning, and all of a sudden, they hear a report that the tomb is empty. Now, John and Peter need to find out what's just happened. So they run to the tomb and it's true. The the grave is empty. His, His body isn't there. Well, that night, so Sunday night, they're again hiding in this room, trying to figure out and understand all that's taken place, trying to make sense of it all. And all of a sudden, Jesus appears to them. And they begin to believe. The problem is, Thomas wasn't there Sunday night. So Thomas shows up a little later, and they tell him, Thomas, we we saw the resurrected Jesus. He's alive. And he goes, I don't believe you. I I don't believe you. You see, Thomas knew that the Romans were expert executioners. They had found and crafted a way to give someone the maximum amount of torture and suffering and guarantee their death at the end of it all. If someone was condemned to be crucified, what would first happen is they would carry the, the horizontal beam on their back to the site of their crucifixion. Once there, they would be laid down on the wooden beams. Their hands would be nailed to the horizontal beam and their feet nailed to the vertical beam. After that, they would raise you up and drop you into the hole in which the cross would sit. And what would happen then is you would slowly die. Not from blood loss, but actually from suffocation. You see, the way you would hang there on the cross would make it incredibly difficult to fill your lungs with air. And the only way you could get air into your chest cavity is if you would actually pull yourself up and push yourself up on the nails to allow your chest to open and breathe. This could go on for days or weeks even at times until finally you no longer had the strength to lift yourself up and you would suffocate. Now, in some instances, there was a feast day the next day, as was in the case of Jesus. And so the Romans had to make sure you died right then and right there, and it would be quick. And so what they did is they would come to the cross and they would actually bash the the, the criminal's shin bones so that they couldn't pull themselves up any longer and they would die. Well, they they did that to the other two criminals and then they came to Jesus and they realized he was already dead. They didn't need to break his shin bones. He was already beaten enough earlier on that day and so he could no longer have the energy to breathe. And so what they did instead is they actually took a spear and they put it underneath his rib cage and it pierced his pericardium so that blood and water flowed out, we're told. Now, this wasn't a totally unique scar to Jesus, but it was incredibly rare. And and so Thomas goes, he says in verse 25, unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and, and place my hand into his sides, I'll never believe. He says, look, I saw them kill him. I saw him die. The only way I will believe is if I know that the same person who went into the tomb with those scars is the person who came out of the tomb. Now now think about this for just a second with me. Thomas's closest friends, not just one of them, but there would have been 10 other disciples, tried to convince him that Jesus was alive. These are his closest, most trusted friends. Thomas actually had heard. Jesus predict that he would die and come back to life. Thomas would have wanted Jesus to be resurrected. All of his hopes were, were put on that reality, and yet despite all of those facts, he still chooses to doubt. See, I, I think we often assume this. You know, the people back then, 2,000 years ago, They didn't have the science and the knowledge and understanding that we have today. And so back then, they would have believed in the supernatural. And and so back then, I totally understand how they might have understood there to be a resurrection. That is totally historically untrue. It's untrue. You see, in Greco-Roman thought, your soul was good and your body is bad. And so the last thing you would want is to actually come back to life. You you want your soul to be freed from your body, and so you don't want an embodied life. You don't want a resurrection. You didn't expect a resurrection. Now, Jews, on the other hand, they did believe in a resurrection, but Jews believed in a resurrection once and for all. They believed that when the resurrection happened, all of God's people would simultaneously be brought back to life, and... That would only happen when God made all things right. The resurrection would only happen when sin and suffering and pain was dealt with. And so listen to the way uh, one pastor puts it. He says this, the idea of an individual being resurrected in the middle of history while the rest of the world continued on burdened by sickness, decay, and death was inconceivable. Ridiculous. The very idea of an individual resurrection would have been as impossible to imagine to a Jew as to a Greek. The the point I'm trying to make is this. When Thomas hears from his best friends that Jesus has come back to life, his response is not one of excitement, but of skepticism. And of course... He, he didn't have a, a category for the resurrection like that. And so Thomas goes, I'm not believing that. You can't, you can't trick me. I'm going to need that. I'm getting too excited up here. This pulpit's moving too much. I'm not, I'm not falling for that. You can't, you can't trick me to believe that. I'm not gullible. You see, see, the the idea of a resurrection was no more likely back then than it is today. It's not easier to believe back then as it was or as it is today. And so Thomas needs to be then secondly confronted. Confronted doubt. Verse 26 says this. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them this time. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your fingers here, and see my hands, and put your hand, and and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. I, I find it really encouraging to see jesus's approach to Thomas <laughs> it's not how dare you, Thomas how, he doesn't he doesn 't scold him or reprimand me like how Thomas, how could you doubt me that's that's not the way Jesus approaches Thomas. He actually accommodates Thomas's disbelief he he, he knows what Thomas needs to believe, and so he says, okay, Thomas, if that's what it's going to take for you to believe then here, here I am, see my scars, touch my wounds. He doesn't just forget us and move on. He actually wants to answer our prayer of, Lord, I believe, but, but help my unbelief. And so what is it then that moves Thomas along from doubt to belief, from disbelief to belief? It's the resurrection. It's the resurrection. All of a sudden, he has new categories. There's been a new concept that has broken through into the framework of his world and of his God, and he needs to all of a sudden reconfigure everything he once knew to be true. You see, it, it had been eight days, we're told. It's been eight days since Thomas first realized that maybe this is actually something that happened. And he's had Eight days to think through all of the things Jesus formerly did while he was with him. All the things Jesus said while he was walking with him. He, he heard things like, Jesus would say, I and the Father are one. Whoever's seen me has seen the Father. He told Thomas directly, Thomas, I actually have to leave. I have to go to be with my Father, but don't worry. I'm going to prepare a place for you. So you you can come and be with me. Thomas heard Jesus tell a paralytic man, your sins are forgiven. And because that would have been outrageous to hear from any man, Jesus said, you don't believe me? Okay, get up and walk. And the paralytic man got up and walked. He heard Jesus say things like, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die yet he shall live. And so Thomas heard all of those things. The problem was that he didn't understand how that was really possible. You see, only, only God could say things like that. Only God could do things like that. And he had never believed that a man could also be fully God. He couldn't move forward. He couldn't wrap his head around it until... Jesus walks into the room, and he shows him his scars. He sees Jesus alive. And then we hear Thomas utter maybe the clearest, most bold proclamation of who Jesus is. He says in verse 28, Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. I'm um, I'm not sure what level of doubt you walked into this room with this morning. Uh, maybe it's anything from like, hey, I don't really believe, or I don't know if miracles are true. I, I don't know how God could have created this world. I, I don't really understand how a good God could allow suffering. It doesn't make sense to me. Anything from that to like, hey, look, I don't know if God can actually help me in this situation that I'm in. I don't know if God can forgive my sins. Like the same sin that I've been struggling with over and over and over again that I promised him I would never do again. Like, is he really really good enough to forgive me of that? I don't don't know what level of doubt you walked into this room with. This, This is what I know, though. The first and most important question you need to answer is, is Jesus alive? Is he alive? Look, if, if Jesus is dead, this whole thing is a joke. If, if Jesus is dead, please do not believe any of this. Go, go, go put your trust in something else. Uh, Paul will say later on in the book of First Corinthians, if, if Jesus is not alive, we, we are most to be pitied. What are we doing believing this? It's foolishness. This is not belief for belief's sake. There's there's nothing good in believing a lie. But if Jesus is alive, then everything changes. If Jesus is alive, that means miracles are actually possible. If Jesus is alive and he has the power to defeat death, and though this world may look like chaos, I actually can understand that God is able to work out this chaos and accomplish something good through it all. If Jesus is alive, that means the penalty of sin has been paid, because the penalty of sin is death, and if Jesus is no longer dead, but alive, then my sin, which was put on Jesus, has actually been paid. And we're forgiven for all our sins, past, present, and future. If Jesus is alive, then I can understand there is a way for him to make all things right. To do away with suffering and sickness and death. If Jesus is alive, then I know that I will rise too. And that we will no longer stay in the grave. But that when Christ comes back, he will take us to be with him. And we will have everlasting life. If Jesus is alive, then I'll live for him. And he's worth everything I do. If he is alive, then he really is my Lord and my God. My Lord and my God. It's the confession that every Christian makes. Everyone who trusts in the resurrection makes it. God, I believe. And so you are my Lord and my God. And so verse 29 then says this. Jesus said to him, have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Now, when Jesus says that to Thomas, he's not like, okay, Thomas, fine. Yeah, you saw me. Like, great, you believed. Hey, true blessing, you know, that's going to come to people who don't need evidence. That's not what Jesus is saying here. He's saying, Thomas, you have believed because you've seen me stand in front of you. There is going to come a time when I'm going to be back with my father. And in that interim period, The people who believe are going to believe because you tell them about me. It's your testimony that you saw me that is going to change them. And like that, the world began to believe. See, this is what many uh, scholars call the historical problem of the resurrection. The historical problem of the resurrection. See, if you're a historian... Um, by default, by the very fact and the field you work in, you have to deny the possibility for miracles. You, you just, you have to say upfront, I have to work within this framework. Miracles aren't real. The resurrection isn't real. And so that couldn't have happened. The problem is for historians is they don't really have a better way of explaining than what happens. How did everything change seemingly overnight? You see, seemingly out of nowhere, Christianity began to spread like wildfire. Se- seemingly out of nowhere, people began to have a new, et- entirely different understanding of what resurrection could be. Jews who, who once worshiped for millennia on-, on Saturday began to trust in a human Lord, and all of a sudden they changed their day of worship from Saturday to Sunday, in order to commemorate the resurrection. In the ancient Near East, people began to worship a man as God. That had never happened before. Deeply afraid disciples, please hear this, afraid disciples who once cowered in fear in a locked room all of a sudden became bold and began to tell others about Jesus, even to the point of death. Ten, please hear this, Ten of the disciples were murdered because they said, no, it is more important for me to tell this other person about Jesus than it is for me to stay alive. But Blaise Pascal said, I believe those witnesses that get their throats cut. I believe people who are willing to die in order to, to share what they believe. You you don't, you don't die for a lie. How does that all happen? It happens because Jesus rose from the dead and because he is alive and because he continues to transform lives. And so look, uh, in a second here, we are going to listen to 14 testimonies. Um, We as a church across our neighborhood or across our network are, are celebrating 14 baptisms today. This is is the most in the history of our church. These are 14 people who have said, I believe that Jesus is alive. And I've experienced his transforming work in my life. And so I want to be baptized as a way of, of telling others. It's my public confession that I want to follow Jesus. Because he has made me new. He's paid for my sin and I will believe that I will be with him for forever one day. So we're going to watch these testimonies, but here's how I want to end. It has been um, a tradition in the Christian church for Christians to greet each other on Easter by saying, he is risen, and for the other person to respond with, he is risen indeed. And so I just want to end by doing that. But by saying, yes, I, I believe. I believe that you are alive. Let let this be my testimony to all who hear my voice, that I believe that He is risen indeed. So let's let's respond this way, and then we'll watch this video. He is risen. He is risen indeed. Amen. Let's watch these videos.
1: <laughs> my life before knowing Jesus was hopeless, a mess. And having grown in the Roman Catholic Church, it was just a striving to prove myself through works. A friend first invited me to attend a Reform Evangelical Church, and that's when I first heard that I'm saved by grace through faith. And that's not my own doing, but it's the gift of God. The Lord has really rooted my identity in Him, uh, especially thinking of Romans 8 verse 1. There is now therefore no condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus. I want to get baptized today because Jesus Christ saved my life and He's Lord over it and will be forever and I want to proclaim that.
2: I met Jesus when I was 12 and I was coming in and out of church and when I was 21 I came back to a church and Jesus helped me out with uh, to quit alcohol, uh, cigarettes, drugs, and sexual immorality. What I noticed is that I was not living fully as Jesus um, told me to live. So what happened is that I decided to follow him fully. I don't feel like I should have this or I should do that in order to be someone. Um, Jesus has given me identity. And for that same reason, I wanna be baptized and I wanna proclaim as who he is, which is the Lord, my savior and my everything. I
3: accepted Jesus into my heart at a young age but I never really took Christ seriously until I realized at school that my friends weren't being very nice and I guess I wasn't being very nice either and until I read Mark 12:30, which says love your neighbor as you love yourself and I realized I wasn't doing that very well. I feel happy because I've been devoting myself more to him and spending more time with him through praying and the Bible. I want to be baptized because I want to show publicly that I believe in the gospel and I believe God's work and I feel like it's also a next step in my faith.
1: Before coming to Christ, my life was very focused on the materialistic things of this world, Uh, seeking after job, uh, career, money, relationships, and just trying to find fulfillment in life, Um, but ultimately not finding it at all. Uh, A friend from the church I grew up in sent me a video breaking down the historical evidence for the Bible. Uh, One night I was looking through that video series while I was actually high on weed, and God completely used that to show me a vision of what heaven is and what hell is. And I never saw any, like, actual imagery of it, but I just felt a sense of pure self and a sense of pure love and pure godliness. And I knew at that moment that I needed to change my life. I need to stop focusing on things of this world and focus more on God. I'm now focused on just learning more about Jesus, learning more about God, what he's done, um, and just fellowshipping with other brothers and sisters, getting to know other people's stories and learning from them and sharing with them and just growing as a body. For me, baptism is a step of obedience. So to me, it's the next big thing I wanna do in my life, but also it feels like I wanna do it right way. Uh, When I first became a Christian during COVID, I did my baptism in my bathtub over a call with a bunch of strangers I didn't actually know. And now that I'm part of a church, I want to come back to that and do it in front of everyone and pledge a clear conscience before God in front of the whole body.
3: I came to Christ um, at a very young age, growing up in a Christian family, but because I was so young, I didn't really know and understand what it meant to be a Christian. Um, I learned that over time throughout high school, throughout university, um, and going to church, listening to different sermons, and really trying to understand what what does it mean to be a Christian versus a good enough Christian. I feel so much more free and loved in Christ. I feel like I have a purpose, I feel joy and peace, and I have this amount of love that I just want to spread out to everyone else. I want to be baptized to publicly declare my dedication to Christ, um, to be able to tell and show everyone that I am here for Christ, to run to Christ um, and run with him as well.
4: So my life before Christ was very unstable. I was anxious and uncertain. I was pretty much looking for grounding in anything but Christ. And as a result, I was very burdened. I was very troubled by that. I was diagnosed with obsessive compulsive disorder in university. I had a lot of fear about contamination and my safety and well-being. At that time, I reached out to God and asked for help. uh, And He did deliver on that help. Um, Stubbornly at the time, in hindsight, I walked away from God thinking that I could handle things on my own after that. Uh, Years later though, I realized that that wasn't true. I had a very difficult relationship breakup and once again found myself on my back. So I reached out to God and he was faithful to me and he delivered me once again. And that time around, I I really realized that that I needed Christ, I needed God. I I wasn't enough on my own. Um, And so he really gave me that stability, that rock to stand on. My life after Christ has been markedly different. He's given me relief from my burdens. Um, He cares about my anxieties. He's lifted me up from the trenches and I I feel at peace with, with Christ. I want to be baptized because I want to publicly express my faith. I want to be a good witness. I want to share my testimony. And I want to share the joy of being baptized. I want to feel what it feels like to, to, to share that with the world and to know that Christ is my rock and that uh, I can proclaim that good message of truth.
5: I received Christ into my heart in my early preachings, but I didn't really critically think about what it meant to be a Christian. I struggled a bit in high school with um, loneliness and trying to fulfill a desire to seek approval in the new transient setting of university life. I wasn't surrounded by the same groups of people anymore that I was in high school and allowed me to take some time to reflect on my own of what it really meant to live my life as a Christian and what role that God had for me. I want to be baptized because I want to declare my faith in Jesus and recognize that he died on the cross for my sins out of His unconditional love for me, and I want to dedicate the rest of my life following Christ and acting as a servant of God.
6: I came to Christ when I was seven. I was blessed to be raised in a family of all Christians, and ever since then, I knew of God. I filled my insecurities with relationships, with friends, shopping, uh, sports, work, and I thought I could do it all by myself. Uh, Two years ago, I felt like I lost a lot. I was struggling, and I looked up and asked God for help, and He pulled me out. Everything I do now, I'm more happy. Everything I do, I bring glory to God. So my thoughts, my actions, it's God-centered. I want to proclaim my love for Jesus in front of everyone. I want them to see how God has worked in my life, and I want to bring glory to God that way.
3: Before coming to Christ, my life was very lonely, uh, very sad. It came from a broken, blended family, and it really wasn't worth living. A friend I hold in very high esteem uh, had an experience that brought them to Christ. From that point on, I just became more and more interested and eventually, when the churches opened back up, uh, we were so excited to join one, and Christ City was the first one that I have ever been to. Since coming to Christ, my life has been so filled with love and unexpected blessings and just people I didn't know I needed in my life, and I don't think I could ever go back. I want to be baptized because I'm looking forward to washing away the person and the life I used to have and moving forward with Jesus by my side.
2: Uh, I grew up in a Christian home uh, with believing parents. And although my change was very gradual, this is the grace of God who granted me with a loving and believing family. As a Christian, I feel more freedom. I can live how God intended me to live. I don't have to be a slave to sin anymore. I want to be baptized to publicly proclaim that I put my faith and trust in Christ and I want to live that life that he created me to live.
6: Um, My life before Christ was just filled with uh, a lot of anxiety, bouts of depression, and I would turn to really unhealthy coping mechanisms to try and fix those um, feelings that I was having and um, to fill a void of hopelessness. Um, and worthlessness, and I just felt very lost and confused in my life. I came to Christ through um, my boyfriend primarily. Um, He uh, pushed me to explore Christianity, and after exploring a little bit, I had some really um, awesome and intense moments with God, and from there on, I just knew that Jesus was my savior. My anxieties and my depressions are um, a lot more at ease because I have Jesus to turn to rather than unhealthy coping mechanisms. I feel a sense of hope and a sense of worth in my life. And I've overall just been a lot more driven and a lot happier. And I'm so thankful for that. I want to be baptized because I want to have the closest relationship to Jesus as I can. And I want to make a proclamation that I'm committing my life to him. So, I was born into a Christian home with two amazing parents that always took me to Sunday uh, every week, Um, and there I really learned the story of Jesus and God, but didn't fully understand what it meant to be a Christian or how that impacted my life. As a young teen, I began going to summer camp every year, and that's when I really started my personal relationship with Jesus, and from there on out, uh, God just continued to provide mentors and community around me to continue help me to grow my faith. I want to get baptized today uh, because I know I've been saved by Jesus' sacrifice, and I want this to be a declaration and a commitment to my faith, and to continue living my life for God.
2: For most of my life I was stuck in a vortex of Substance addiction, so just kind of lost, wandering around, full of angst and anxiety, unhappy, not having any meaning to my life. I came to Christ because, uh, well, first of all, God is a large part of the 12-step recovery program. And then early in my recovery, I went looking around for a church to just, uh, so I can know more and learn more. I love the exuberance of uh, Christians at the church. and. Uh, I wanted some of what they had. I have hope and I have periods of joy, something I've never experienced before. I never had any hope. I never had any kind of direction. I am excited. I'm excited to see what, uh, you know, what God's got in store for my life, what I can do, who I can help. I've just been isolating and alone my whole life, never felt, ever felt a part of anything. And so now I have this rich community at the church and it's just really exciting. I think maybe that's what maybe God intended the whole time. I want to be baptized because I want to make a proclamation to the church and indeed to the world that I'm, I'm anew in, in Jesus. And I want to shed my old life, which was very unpleasant and unhappy indeed, and start a new life anew as a follower of Jesus.